0: We are a people that follow after those things That make for peace, love, and unity It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same We do deny and bear our testimony Against all strife and wars and contention.
1: The next five sections of this book cover the peace testimony. Three of those are presented in this podcast session. So, it seems right to repeat here the query that every monthly meeting of Ohio Yearly Meeting must ponder each year. As with all queries, the answers are recorded in minutes and shared with the rest of the Yearly Meeting. The sixth query reads, Do we live in the life and power which takes away the occasion for all wars? Do we? on Christian principles, refuse to participate in or cooperate with the military effort? Do we work actively for peace and removal of the causes of war? Do we endeavor to cultivate goodwill, mutual understanding, and equal opportunities for all people? Chapter 7, Section A. Our Lives as Our Testimony. Testimony means evidence in support of a fact, or a proof. It can also mean a public declaration regarding a religious experience. Most people who have attended evangelical services have heard the latter, when individuals rise and tell their personal stories of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Friends through the first centuries of their existence embraced both definitions, recognizing that Christ Jesus and the scriptures enjoin us to witness not only with our tongues, but also with our lives. As Jesus said in chapter 7 of Matthew, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. True faith produces good fruit. In the second chapter of his epistle, the Apostle James declares, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, is clear concerning the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faith that produces no visible words lacks the concreteness of truth. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul warns that though we may be as eloquent as the angels and give up our bodies to martyrdom, if we have not love, we do these things for nothing. Among 20th century friends, it became popular to speak of testimonies rather than testimony. Many writers and scholars developed lists of testimonies that they termed friends' testimonies, such as sincerity, honesty, integrity, peaceableness, faithfulness, etc. While such analysis helps remind us of the fruits expected of us, they also had the unintended consequences of laying out a smorgasbord that led some friends to pick and choose a few testimonies that they would uphold, and that led some others to emphasize certain testimonies as far more important than others. Let us return from the fragmented vision of testimonies to the original friend's understanding that our entire lives are to be a testimony, a proof of the presence and power of Christ Jesus alive in the world. This is what Christ Jesus and his apostles repeatedly exhort us to in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 31, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, John chapter 3, verse verses 11 to 24, and a multitude of other passages. Chapter 7, Section B, The Lamb's War Early friends identified the struggle between Christ Jesus and the satanic powers of darkness and evil as the Lamb's War. It is a war to expose and judge the deceiver and his deceptions, both within us individually and in the world at large. The first generations of friends understood far better than the generations that followed them that Christ's inward work of sanctifying each of us was as essential in the conversion of the world as was bringing others into the kingdom of God. Too often since the 17th century, the emphasis has shifted back and forth between the inward struggle and the outward conflict with evil. With the result that Christ's work has suffered from a want of a clear, sustained, and zealous witness. In the Old Testament, the Lamb is a symbol of the people of God and a figure for telling the sacrifice of Jesus. The Lamb as a figure for Jesus Christ continues in the New Testament. Revelation refers to the Lamb as Christ in a number of verses and to the struggle of forces with Satan with the Lamb. In referring to the Lamb's war, Early friends were not referring to an abstract theological concept, but a reality they experienced in all areas of their lives. Through conviction, they abstained from oaths, military service, the payment of tithes, superfluous fashions, and dishonest dealings. The lambs were allowed no room for lukewarm commitment. Early friends understood that Jesus Christ was leading them, providing them with spiritual weapons, and sustaining them as they submitted to the cross of Christ which is the power of God. The Lamb's War is, first and foremost, an inward war in which the inward enemy is the man or woman of sin within us, our own disobedience and not following God's commandments. To neglect the war within us is to undermine and betray the war effort beyond us. The enemy of our souls and of our peace, even after our conversion, holds at least some territory within us though he was driven from his headship within us when we seated ourselves to Christ Jesus, the remnants of the old man or woman of disobedience are still deeply entrenched in some areas of our nature, well camouflaged and extremely subtle and devious, almost as subtle and devious at times as the evil one who originally seduced and occupied us and whose designs and desires most of us have served far too long. The country we fight for is no earthly country, but our Lord's own kingdom. Jesus himself testified before Pilate, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. Unquote. Christ's kingdom is first and foremost a kingdom of truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to him. Jesus is emphatic on this. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom and be members of it. Even if one prophesies powerfully, casts out demons, and works miracles, if these things are done outside God's will, they mean nothing. They are simply the work of evildoers whom our Lord does not know. Martyrs who have not God's love in them are nothing. Paul was clear and precise in identifying the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against our fellow men and women, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Our Lord has clearly defined the weapons we are to bring to his confrontation of evil. As we aren't at war with men and women, our weapons are neither physical nor hurtful to any of the creation. As we were at war with the spiritual forces of evil, we are commanded to use only spiritual weapons. Paul exhorts us to, quote, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, unquote. The primary purpose of armor has been to protect the wearer against the weapons and assaults of the enemy. Given the power and viciousness of our enemy, we need to be well protected so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. And after we have prepared for everything, we can stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We are to take up the shield of faith, with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. This is considerable armor and excellent protection, unless we have ignored and neglected our armor's direction, his preparations in suiting us, and his careful training and formation. Our very life will be easily taken without faith to protect our head, righteousness to protect our heart, and faith to protect us against vital inward life, feet properly shod for the long and difficult marches we face. Our weapons, the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit, cut to the enemies quick, and even if we physically die in the confrontation, we will continue to live as our Lord lives. Chapter 7, Section C, The Lamb's War and Peace As friends, we believe we are called to follow the leading of God, both as individuals and as a people. It is not for us to set our own agendas, and that expect God to arrange things so that all comes out in a desirable way. But how are we to know what God's intentions are for us individually and as a people? We look to Jesus both in the record in the scriptures and as he speaks to us today. By his coming, Jesus ushered in a new era with a new covenant between God and his people. Prior to Jesus' birth on earth, Many prophecies had been given about the nature of this new relationship and how God's people were to live. A most basic one is in Jeremiah, chapters 31, verses 31 to 34. It reads as follows. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah." It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, "Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In Isaiah, we find many more prophecies about the coming of Christ and the nature of his revelation to his people. Among those prophecies, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4 reads, In the last days... The mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plashers and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and neither will they learn war anymore. Another is Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 9, which describes the peaceful nature of Christ's kingdom. It reads, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rods of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These prophecies have been important to friends over the years. Jesus fulfilled them. In his teachings and in his behavior, Jesus illustrated that outward carnal weapons are not to be used to achieve the goals of his kingdom. Nevertheless, friends have used the image of war to demonstrate that obedience to God involves a struggle of epic proportions between good and evil, played out by individuals and corporately by his people. The metaphor of the Lamb's War provides a seemingly contradictory picture of a vulnerable, defenseless animal successfully engaging in combat on a vast scale. The method of the Lamb's War may seem contradictory as well. How can a war achieve the peaceful kingdom of God and His rule over His creation? To achieve this kingdom requires a struggle between the followers of Jesus Christ and the forces of this world which oppose Him and His righteousness. In the Lamb's War, persons allied with Christ acknowledge Him as their leader, who sets the goals, properly equips His army of followers, and provides the way to victory. Not only do we have to set aside our own agendas, but we also have to relinquish our attachments to the forces and ways of this world and become as pilgrims in our passage through this life. We have to abandon our personal strengths and abilities in order to accept powerlessness And vulnerability, that the power and strength of Jesus Christ might effectively equip us, as in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17. We learn to feel a confidence that is not our own. As the Lamb leads us, he achieves the victory. The basis of our peace testimony, then, is not that of a secular humanist belief in the inherent goodness of humans nor is it a political objective. Neither do we believe in the idea of a just war, which was set forth by Augustine in the 5th century as the basis for Christians to go to outward battle with outward weapons to fight with the armies of this world. Rather, as followers of Jesus Christ, we feel called to obedience to our Master, who commanded his disciple to put up his sword we feel called to seek for the good of all and to achieve a better way that will endure as george fox observed that which is won by the sword must be upheld by the sword and that which is won by the spirit will be upheld by the spirit
0: we are a people that follow after those things that make for peace love and unity it is our desire that others feet may walk in the same we do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention
1: this podcast has presented a portion of the book traditional quaker christianity the book was assembled and edited by Cherry Wallace, Jack and Susan Smith, and Arthur Burke. It was read by Chip Thomas, and the audio edited by the same. The words for our musical introduction are from Margaret Fell's Letter to the King in 1660. They were arranged and sung by Paulette Meyer. To find out more about Paulette's work, go to paulettemeyer.com. That's Paulette. M-E-I-E-R dot com.